Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Moving on to chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, as uh, Robin mentioned, my name is, is Johnny. If we haven't met before, um, I hope we can perhaps rectify that today. Please do come and say hello to me uh, after the service. Um, we are delighted to be with you, uh, to give thanks for this building this weekend. All four of us, I'm the only one here at this service, but Fiona and the boys too. Thank you so much uh, for having us. It is a wonderful new building. I think I said in the first service, it's the first time in a while that I've been to a service in November and felt quite so warm. Uh, it's wonderful. So let's rejoice in that. And we're going to spend some time thinking together about Matthew chapter 28. But before we do that, let me pray for our time together. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lord, we thank you this morning for your eternal word. And ask that as we study that word together over the coming few minutes, you would please grant each one of us clarity. Clarity about what your word says, what it tells us of you. And clarity as to how you would have us respond. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Well, there are certain crossroads moments, certain kind of forks in the road moments in the life of any organization. Moments when setting a new vision or, or, or formulating a new strategy or purpose can be just what is needed to enable the organization to really flourish. Take, for example, social media platform Bourbon. The platform was launched in 2012, and its purpose was to allow users to check in when they visited different places and to arrange to meet people at those places. The platform began to struggle a bit, perhaps understandably, given that, that sounds like quite a limited range of things that allowed you to do. And designers of the platform found themselves at a bit of a crossroads, unsure of what to do next. So they decided to change tack, to, to, to change, completely rewrite their vision statement and their overall objectives as a platform. They added the ability to the platform of being able to upload photographs and to add filters to those photographs. And things just exploded. 
The platform grew rapidly. It now has over 1 billion users. You most likely won't know it as Bourbon, though it's since changed its name to Instagram. And the reason I mention that is that this moment might feel like just such a fork in the road moment for Chammers as a church family. Not because things haven't been working, as was the case for Bourbon, quite the contrary, in fact, but because you're finally able to meet in to have permanent use of this shiny, newly redeveloped building. And it's quite a common thing for churches who've just completed a building project like this one to to kind of review their priorities and to refocus themselves, perhaps even to set a fresh vision for what they want to prioritize as a church family. And that's actually why I'm here this morning. Not because I have any insightful contributions to make to that discussion. Quite the opposite, in fact. But because in Matthew 28, the universally authoritative Jesus Christ does. He sets out the agenda, the purpose which his followers ought to pursue. And in short, that purpose is this. He calls his followers to make followers. Now that might well be quite familiar ground for some of us. But it is important to be crystal clear on that as you plot a way forward, to be reminded of who really calls the shots for Chalmers Church and of exactly what he would have this church family prioritize. And so that's what we're going to do together over the next few minutes. There are some headings on your service sheet which you might find helpful to have in front of you as we go. The first of which is that the resurrected Jesus Christ has universal authority. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, this passage might be quite familiar to many of us, not least because every Easter, preachers all over the world speak about this passage as Christians celebrate the hope of Resurrection Sunday. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The, The resurrected Jesus Christ is walking, talking evidence of the hope of the Christian faith, hope of everlasting life, hope of of a renewed world. But I wonder if you notice that in Matthew's account of the resurrection, hope isn't the implication to which he draws our attention. Just look again at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, that's the resurrected Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, rather than a note of hope, Jesus, this freshly resurrected Jesus Christ, makes a claim of authority. And in fact, it's a claim to have universal authority. Notice, all authority in heaven and on earth, says Jesus. Nothing falls outside of the scope of his good and right rule. Now, that might not be the first implication we would expect him to draw for us from the resurrection, that it proves his authority. And yet, well, it does make sense, doesn't it? See, in Matthew's account... We're given two different options when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We see that in, in the, the rest of our reading this morning, the closing verses of Matthew 27 and the first chunk of Matthew 28. The religious leaders of Jesus' day try to spread a story. The story is that Jesus' followers managed to pull off a monumental fraud. They, 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 they stole his body after it had been laid in a tomb and hid it somewhere else. And you see, if that was the case, if the resurrection didn't really happen, well, then all of Jesus' claims about himself that he'd made throughout his life, they fall apart. But if it did happen, if the resurrection is a historical event, as Matthew wants us to see that it is, well, then Jesus is absolutely vindicated in his claim to be God's king God's son to have been given all authority by God himself. And you see that fact, the fact that Jesus has such authority, well, it legitimizes the command that he then issues to his followers. I wonder if you followed that logic as you read the passage a few minutes ago. Verse 18, the Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth, verse 19, instructs his followers to go to all the earth, to go to all nations. You see, Jesus isn't sending his followers to go anywhere over which he doesn't already have a rightful claim. He isn't asking them to make some kind of land grab, if you like, but to assert his authority where he already has authority. And if, a, if you are a Christian this morning, well, I hope you find that to be a reassuring thing. See, we are encouraged in our culture, aren't we, to think of faith as being a purely kind of personal exercise. It's a private decision. It doesn't really have anything to do with anyone else. And that can make us feel a bit uncertain about whether we can legitimately tell people about him or not, whether we even have the right to do that kind of thing. You might, you might have come across that kind of thinking before in discussions about world mission, for example, where Christians have traveled to, to various parts of the world where Jesus isn't known yet. The accusation sometimes made is that it's arrogant to try and spread your faith to people who have other worldviews. After all, what gives you the right? How arrogant can you Christians get? And it's an accusation that we might even have experienced or felt ourselves if we've ever tried talking to a friend or a colleague about Jesus. I remember to, uh, chatting to someone once, a friend of mine who wasn't a Christian, about the Christian faith. And uh, halfway through our conversation, he, he stopped me and said, Johnny, it's just fascinating hearing what you believe but I'm just so glad that you aren't like one of those Christians who, who thinks that everyone else should think the same thing as you. Now, that was sad for me in a couple of ways. Firstly, because it showed me I'd done a poor job of explaining the Christian faith in the first place. And secondly, because it made me wonder whether I really did have any right to call this man to believe in Jesus. It can be an unsettling thing, an unsettling idea if you're a Christian. We don't want to be arrogant. But you see, Jesus already has a claim over people, whether we speak to them or not. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And so you see, there is no person you will ever meet, no part of the globe to which you might travel, over whom or over which Jesus does not have an authoritative claim. And that means that his command to go, to make disciples of all nations, well, it's absolutely legitimate, isn't it? You aren't just trying to persuade people to agree with you, to join your club. No, you're telling them of one who has authority over both you and them. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and and you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian. And I wonder what you make of all of that. That claim that Jesus makes to have authority over you and over your life. See, if the resurrection of Jesus is all one big ruse, if it's a fraud of epic proportions that just got out of hand, well then of course he has no more authority over you and over your life, no more claim over you than I do. But you see, if he was physically raised from the dead, as the eyewitnesses attest, well, then you have to sit up and pay attention to what he says, don't you? And what he says is that he is your king and mine. And that the rejection of his rule over your life is a serious, serious thing. And so if you've never thought about that before today, well, let me encourage you to do so. Perhaps you could go about reading one of the accounts of Jesus' life, perhaps more of the one we've read this morning, Matthew's account, or you could come back to some of the Christmas services over the course of the next few weeks. Let me please encourage you to do that. The claim Jesus makes is universal, and you have to do something with it. But you see, not only does uh, Jesus' universal authority mean that his command to go and make disciples a legitimate one, If you're a Christian, well, it also means that obedient to that command is necessary. What do I mean? Well, there are people who are specially gifted as evangelists, aren't there? I can think of a few folks in the Chalmers Church family who really do have a particular gift in telling other people about Jesus, and we thank God for them. But for those of us who don't feel particularly gifted in that way, Well, it's just possible we might come to think of of, of making disciples as being a kind of special interest activity, that it's something that that, that keen bean Christians are called to, or that extroverted Christians are called to, or that people who are trained to do that sort of thing are called to. And it's even possible to do that corporately as a church family. Chammers, for example, have made a priority of training people for gospel ministry, and Fiona and I are hugely thankful for that, having benefited from it, as have many others over the years. And we'll see in a few minutes' time, that is part of this great commission. But it would be possible to conclude from that, from Chammers' particular focus on training, well, that Chammers doesn't really need to worry too much about the rest of it. Chalmers' job is to train Christians, not to reach out to those who aren't Christians yet. But it is just worth noting that in Matthew 28, well, the call to make disciples, it isn't contingent on people's giftedness 
on their resources, on their temperament or character. Now notice, it's contingent only on the authority of Jesus Christ. Again, I wonder if you noticed that connection. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Or in other words, if we submit to him and his authority over our lives, then telling people about him who don't know him yet is necessary. It's part of being an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. See, the resurrected Jesus Christ has universal authority, and that means that his command to make disciples is legitimate, and that obedience to that command is necessary. But what does all of that look like? What does it actually mean to obey Jesus' command in Matthew 28? Well, we'll think about that under our next heading this morning. The authority of Jesus Christ commands his disciples to make disciples. Now, I mentioned uh, a moment or two ago that, that a church's arrival in a new building or refurbishment of a building is often a stage when fresh strategies are plotted or a new series of church objectives are set out. That's quite a common thing to do at this stage in the life of a church family. And if you were ever minded to do that, there are any number of experts you might call on for advice, or Christian books you might read for inspiration. But one problem in doing that is that you may well hear quite a number of different suggestions of, of what Christians, of what churches ought to prioritize. It's often a matter of disagreement, even among Christians, and that can be quite a confusing thing. But there's no such confusion in what Jesus says, is there? He's crystal clear. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, there are a number of of, of different doing words, of verbs in verses 19 and 20, but the main command, the main imperative is pretty clear. Disciple-making is what Jesus wants his followers to be about until he returns. And in fact, those other verbs, those other doing words are meant to kind of qualify or clarify what disciple-making looks like or involves in verses 19 and 20. It will involve, verse 19, baptizing. Now, I suspect that this text is quite familiar to, to, to some of us. And so the slight strangeness of this part of the command might kind of wash over us, if you'll excuse the dreadful pun. Of all of the constituent parts of making disciples, why does Jesus specifically name baptizing? Well, I think it's because he's using part of a process, baptizing, to refer to a whole process of someone coming to faith. That might sound like a strange thing to do, but we do it quite often, actually. Just imagine for a moment that I were to tell you that last weekend I finished a marathon. I didn't, actually, but imagine I did. If you were to take me at my word, absolutely, literally, by telling you that I've finished a marathon, I needn't necessarily have run the rest of the thing, okay? I could have spent an afternoon standing on the sidelines at mile 25.9 of the race, 
and been caught up in the adrenaline and excitement of it all and decided to run across the line and get all the glory with the ticker tape in my hands in the air at the end. And yet I could still tell you in all good conscience that I finished the marathon because I literally did. But of course, when I say that I finished a marathon, well, you'd reasonably think that that also means that I ran the 26 miles before crossing the finishing line too. And I think it's much the same in this first aspect of what Jesus says about disciple-making. See, baptizing someone is wonderful. You'll be doing that this evening as Chris will be baptized here. Last Sunday at Hebron in Aberdeen, we experienced the joy of that too. I baptized a man called Stuart. But the reason that last Sunday was a joyful day for us wasn't just the act of baptism itself. It was that that baptism was a mark of lots of different things happening in that young man's life. For him, for Stuart, he had heard the good news about Jesus and his death in his place. He had acknowledged his rebellion against God and asked for forgiveness And he had been united to Jesus, adopted into his family. And so his baptism was a mark or a symbol of that whole process. And so you see, baptism in Matthew 28 is a reference to the whole process of someone coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, to be about the business of calling people to faith in him. But notice, that isn't quite the end of the story. I remember once reading an article about a church in another part of the world, actually, who had had an extraordinary impact in their local area. Lots and lots of people had come to faith in Jesus through various kind of outreach events they were running, and the numbers were were really staggering. But the article I was reading had been written by another pastor, another minister working in that area who said that they had seen a steady stream of people pitching up at his church. They were new Christians who effectively had been abandoned by the church where they'd come to faith, or at least that was their sense. As long as someone professed that they were a Christian, that was all that really seemed to matter. After that point, they were on their own. The pastor who was writing the article labeled this phenomenon conversion, then desertion. And it is just possible to to, to set priorities as a church family in a similar way. To throw lots of efforts into reaching people who don't know Jesus yet without really having a framework for what happens after they come to faith. But I wonder if you notice that Jesus' framework isn't conversion, then desertion. I tried to think of an alternative rhyme for what Jesus commands. Instead, the nearest I could get was baptizing, then catechizing, which I know isn't quite right either. Let me express it in Chalmers language. It's reaching and building and training and sending. Reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ and for those who've trusted in him, building them up, growing them as believers, training them and sending them. Where am I getting all of that from? Well, there is a second aspect of making disciples, isn't there? Verse 19, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. People who come to faith in Jesus are to be taught about him and to grow as Christians in their obedience to him. 
Those are the two aspects of this one command, one commission that Jesus issues his followers until his return. Make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And so let's return to our opening idea this morning, this opportunity for Chalmers to take stock and to evaluate what to prioritize going forwards, what to use this wonderful new building for. Jesus is pretty clear about what he would have his people prioritize, isn't he? Making disciples. And yet, whilst in one sense that is well, quite a simple vision, one to which Chalmers are committed, have been for many years, well, it wouldn't take much for it to slip off the radar of any local church. That could happen in quite an obvious way through a big kind of shift or drift in convictions. But it could be more subtle than that. And that was brought home to me quite recently in a conversation I had with a church leader from another part of the world. He was working in a city, which in many ways was quite similar to Edinburgh, a university city with a lot of opportunities for graduates to stay and to work there after studying. And this church leader commented on, on how he thought the church he was involved in leading had been doing really well in Matthew 28 stuff, because there was so much going on, a lot of growth numerically, things looked quite buoyant week by week. But over time, well, it started to become clear to him that what they were really doing was collecting Christians, Christians who'd perhaps arrived in the city for work or for university, and giving them a safe, comfortable space to be Christians, not necessarily to stretch them and train them and grow them and send them, just to let them be. That wasn't the church leader's intention, of course, but it happened nonetheless. And so said this church leader, well, church started to feel a bit like a cruise ship, where the objective was to make Christians comfortable all the way until they reached their destination. And that really bothered him. It bothered him because instead he said it should feel more like a lifeboat, where each member of the crew is someone who themselves have been rescued and is being trained to do the same thing. See, the authoritative Jesus Christ commands his disciples to make disciples. And so that is to be our priority as those who follow him, to continue to be the priority of Chalmers in the years to come, reaching, building, training, and sending. But I wonder how you feel about all of that, particularly if you're a Christian here this morning. Some of us might be absolutely champing at the bit, really keen to crack on with reaching out with the good news of Jesus and building up other Christians. But my guess is that others might not be feeling quite so enthusiastic and might be feeling that for a number of different reasons. Perhaps because the task Jesus sets us sounds a bit scary. Maybe you're naturally quite introverted and, and, and the thought of having a conversation about the Christian faith with someone, well, it just feels terrifying. Maybe you, you've tended so far to keep quiet about your faith, the thought of even owning up to being a Christian with your colleagues or friends, never mind telling them that they should think about it too, is enough to bring you out in a cold sweat. 
Perhaps it all feels a bit scary. Or, or you might not be champing at the bit right now, not because you're scared necessarily, but because you're weary. See, the past few years have been a period of change for the church family at Chammers. And so folks, particularly those who've been around for quite a while, might quietly be hoping that now you're finally in this building, now is the time for things to settle down a bit, to take the foot off the gas, and just to be. And so perhaps the call, this command to be on mission as a Christian, as a church, just feels a bit beyond you now. Well, Jesus' commission is for all Christians, new or experienced, young or old. But it is just worth saying that if you feel inadequate for the task Jesus gives us, well, in one sense, you're right to. See, there is no way that you can do what Jesus is asking of you. It is, in a very real sense, mission impossible. And that isn't me just using hyperbole. Of course, it might sometimes feel impossible to talk to someone about Jesus, but I'm not just talking about how it feels. I'm talking about how it actually is. Because the process Jesus is commanding, baptizing people, bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus, is a supernatural one. Now, of course, you could try bundling someone into a pool of water or pushing them into a swimming pool if all that mattered was getting them wet. But we've already noted that Jesus is talking about the whole process of someone coming to faith in him, and that's a supernatural thing. And so if you're feeling anxious and you're feeling weary and that this call to make disciples is a bit beyond you, well, to be honest, I'm not going to try and dissuade you of that because actually we don't see the half of how difficult it really is. And yet... There is wonderful assurance right at the end of Matthew's account. And that's what we're going to finish with this morning. Just read with me again, verse 20. And behold, says Jesus, I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, on your own, you can't do what Jesus asks of you. As a church family, you can't do what Jesus asks of you, newly refurbished building or not. But you see, the thing is, you aren't on your own. Jesus says he will be with you as you go. And that assurance is all the more profound when we take verses 18 and 20 together. Just do that. Verse 18 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And verse 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The universally authoritative Jesus Christ not only commands you to go, he promises to be with you as you do. Now, what practical difference does that make? Well, as you contemplate having a conversation tomorrow morning with a colleague or a friend or a classmate about your faith in Jesus Christ, 
inviting them to come along to a carol service or to maybe a Hope Explored course in the weeks and months to come. And that job feels like a big ask. Bringing that person to faith in Jesus Christ feels as though it's beyond you. Well, in one sense, it should do. Because it's nothing short of calling someone to new life. And you can't make that happen by yourself. And similarly, as a church family, as you contemplate continuing to make an impact in the city of Edinburgh and the country of Scotland and around the world for Jesus, but are conscious of the sheer scale of that task, of how indifferent or opposed people seem to be to the good news of Jesus, well, again, we don't actually know the half of it. The job at hand of making disciples is actually far harder than any of us might fear, humanly speaking. But remember that the universally authoritative, resurrected Jesus Christ, the one who calls you to the task, promises to be with you as you go. And so as you make Jesus' command your priority as an individual Christian and as a church family, as you set out to fulfill this great commission, well, don't just grit your teeth Don't just strategize about your next conversation with a colleague or a course mate or about your missional strategy into the community of Morningside. But pray. Ask God for his help, for boldness, for the words to say. Ultimately, ask him to bring about new life. See, humanly speaking, Jesus sets us an impossible task But it is a legitimate one because he has all authority. It is a necessary one because in his authority he commands us to go. And yet the one who makes it possible promises to be with you as you go. Let me ask the Lord to help us to be about his business now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is a historical event, that it really happened. And we thank you that because it is a historical event, it is profoundly meaningful. We ask this morning that for any here who don't yet believe in the resurrection of Jesus, haven't yet trusted in Jesus for their own eternity, would you please convince us of the truth of it? And for those who do believe in the resurrection, well, help us, firstly, we pray, to have even greater certainty, and so help us to go and tell, just as you have called us, Lord Jesus that other people might know the freedom of death defeated, of sin and guilt dealt with, and of an eternity in right relationship with the one who made us, with our King, our Lord, our Saviour. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.